Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Strange Sound. I'm Joe. Glad to have you back. Those of you who are with me, can you hear me out there? Let me hear you say, yeah. Let me hear you say, yeah. Just uh, send me a direct message or a voicemail or whatever, and just let me hear you say, yeah. Glad to have you with me. Um... Here we are, most of the way through the month of June in the year 2020. Um, pretty amazing time to be alive. And uh have seen a lot of stuff happen this year. It's been a rough year in a lot of ways. Kind of life-changing, um, as it turns out. Uh, speaking for myself, I, I'm just coming off of several weeks of uh, furlough. And uh, I'm fortunate enough to have a job to come back to. That's more than I can say for a lot of people out there. It's a really rough time to be out of work. Probably the roughest time of my lifetime. Frankly, my lifetime goes goes way back. I'm 61, so uh, that gives you some idea. I haven't seen times this rough ever, as far as I'm aware. And... You know, we've had some bumps over the years, obviously. 2008 was pretty bad. A lot of people have never really come out of that slump. Um, Opportunity for young people since 2008 has been pretty poor, particularly on the uh, lower end of the economic spectrum. Folks that have high school degrees or you know, high school and some college not doing nearly as well as folks who have college degrees and even the folks with college degrees have to scramble. So it's, uh, it's been a rough recovery, um, since 2008 and God knows, uh, since the COVID crisis, which again is largely a product of the failure of our administration, of our presidential administration and our national government to, anticipate and react promptly and protect us from this COVID crisis. They could have done a lot to prevent it from happening. They chose not to, and that put us into what's the equivalent of a Great Depression, as well as a massive pandemic that's killing tens of thousands of people. So I just want to make clear... um, who I think is responsible. I know they're trying to put it off on China. I know they're trying to put it on off on the World Health Organization. But really, no one's more responsible than they are. And as I often say on this program, um, there are plenty of people that you can listen to who are better informed on this, like Lori Garrett. And uh, if you listen to the Best of the Left podcast particularly, they did a really good episode about this a few episodes ago, so I would uh, check that out. 
it's free, you know, download it, take a, take a listen. Um, you don't really need to be an expert to know that this government, that our national government and our president and his administration have been um, quite studied in their refusal to take this crisis seriously. They minimized it. They were warned of the threat and they ignored the warning. They chose to ignore the warnings. And then when it became too big to ignore, they started displacing the blame. They minimized it and then they did a shift and then they started displacing the blame. And the next thing you heard was China, China, China. The Chinese flu, right? The Kung flu, easiest and oldest trick in the book. Find a foreigner responsible for this and blame them. Unfortunately, it works pretty well. This is one of the problems we face in the Trump era. Uh, the dynamic is similar to the, um, the sort of Russia gate um, dynamic that preceded it. And what I mean by that is this. Um, Trump is uh, singularly um, repulsive <laughs> to a broad range of people. Um, as I've talked about on this podcast previously, he's both, um, well, um, Sam Cedar described him as both a loose cannon and a rubber stamp. And he's, and he's right about this. His ideology is himself. And that's the prime motivating force in all of his um, rhetoric and in all of his decision-making, as far as I can tell. But he also has um, on board with him, um, his administration is fully populated by um, essentially a mainstream Republican set of policymakers and people from the core Republican Party, which is very much to the right now, much farther to the right than they were even during the Reagan era. And we've seen this trajectory, this straight-to-the-right trajectory that they've followed. I've talked about it in previous programs, and you've heard it elsewhere, since the 1960s. And um, so what we have is that combination that I've talked about before where we have um, a president who is really focused on his own interests, who can't stop thinking about himself, who does everything um, based on what's best for him, um, and an administration that, that basically follows the line of the Republican Party, which is, in some cases, contradictory to, to the president's impulses, but not in a lot of cases. So he goes along with it, right? So <laughs> what I mean by the, uh, the Russiagate thing is I'm sure that Trump is still focused on the idea of having a massive Trump Tower in the heart of Moscow, and that that's what he thinks about when he talks to Vladimir Putin. He's not a puppet of Putin. Um, Putin is a much smarter political operator than, than Trump is. 
And I'm sure Putin feels like he can get stuff out of Trump a bit more easily than he could get out of, say, a Barack Obama. But, um, you know, just because they feel like they can roll Trump doesn't mean that they're necessarily getting the, the better of the American government because behind Trump is an entire administration full of sort of neo-cold warriors like Pompeo, like, you know, up until recently Bolton, uh, like all the folks that populate the sort of national security state. Um, these are folks that are, you know, yes, I know Trump um, wants to readmit Russia to the um, the G8 and all that, but they they still maintain a, a sort of forward posture against what they consider to be uh, Russian expansionism. And they take the same position now with China. I mean, they're much more openly hostile to China, but you'll notice that, you know, I mean, Trump sort of shifts back and forth depending on, again, what he considers to be in his self-interest. He claims to have a good personal relationship with Xi, just as he claims to have a good personal relationship with both Putin and with uh, Kim Jong-un and with other, other leaders. And I'm sure he feels that way because they probably compliment him. And they probably fawn over him a little bit. They act like they're his friend, right? And they're, they're tough. So he likes them because they're tough. But our policy essentially is not any different than it ever has been under like a Republican administration. And there's very little light between Republicans and Democrats on foreign policy. I think we've seen this, right? I mean, <laughs> there are nuances there are slight differences. Um, Democrats are maybe a little less aggressive and a little less assertive, but it, it, it's kind of a, it's a mixed bag, isn't it? I mean, if you look at the Obama administration, um, they brought the art of drone assassination to um, a much higher level than even the uh, Bush administration had. They initiated the war in in Libya. Uh, they initiated the the um, Saudi campaign in Yemen. They saw the first troops in Syria. So you know it's not it's not like all one way, right? I guess what I'm getting at is one of the problems we face now is that Trump again, as I said before, is so repulsive across such a broad spectrum of American politics that Trump is on one side and the Democrats and a lot of sort of traditional conservatives, some of whose opinions and sort of worldview is well represented in the Trump administration below the level of Trump, um, are arrayed on the other side. So you've got never-Trumper neocons. Um, you've got them standing shoulder to shoulder, essentially, with mainstream Democrats. And that's a really worrisome situation, I think. Because what we're looking at here is a continuation of the status quo in American foreign policy. We're looking at 
an increasing tendency to target China as a major adversary and even um, even to the point of military confrontation. We are seeing uh, an increasing tendency towards a um, support for an arms race with Russia and a confrontation with both Iran and North Korea. This hasn't changed that much. If you put aside all the noise, look at where our policy stands with all of these states, with all of these potential adversaries. It hasn't changed that much. The The rhetoric, though, is getting more heated, particularly on China. And this is, this is troubling because to the extent that Trump himself on a personal level, and again, I'm, I'm distinguishing between Trump and his administration because there are, there are two things going on simultaneously there. Trump himself, the degree to which he departs from this bipartisan consensus on you know, maintaining the global American empire <laughs> is things like um, ratcheting down the tensions with um, North Korea. Or, you know, saying, well, we really should be friends with the Russians. You know, we really shouldn't be adversaries. We should be friends. There is no doubt in my mind that if we manage to eject Trump from the presidency this November, which I really think we should do, and um, I'm going to focus on seeing that happen, um, where do you think our policy is going to go on all of this? on all of these issues. Where do you think our policy is going to go with regard to Russia? Where is our policy going to go with regard to North Korea? Where is our policy going to go with regard to China? I think it's probably not hard to figure out the answer to that. I have to say, though, once again, and I've mentioned this a couple of episodes ago, if you go to JoeBiden.com, I think that's the address, if you go to Joe Biden's campaign website and you look um, under the tab that says Joe's vision, right? There is nothing on foreign policy except just a couple of elements out of like several dozen policy statements and short papers on, you know, short um, blurbs on on what his general policy proposals are on a variety of issues, probably about three dozen issues. There are two that bear on foreign policy, as far as I can tell. And this was true several weeks ago when I first talked about this. I just checked again today, and this is, I'm recording this on um, June, uh, I believe it's the 27th. Um, <laughs> it's still true. <laughs> There's nothing else on foreign policy there. There's nothing about Russia. There's nothing about China. There may be some stuff woven into uh, language about COVID-19. I haven't, I haven't dug that deep. But there's nothing, there's nothing obviously to do with major foreign policy issues. That leaves a hole big enough to drive a truck through. And what we need to do as progressives and as people of the left is make certain that we make this a part of the conversation. And I think that conversation has to be about 
deconstructing the national security state and starting to take a step back from the imperial um, position of the United States that was established many decades ago. What do I mean by that? Well, in this particular moment, we've heard calls for um, defunding the police um, by uh, groups like Black Lives Matter. And that's that's a slogan, right? That's That's an easy way of saying take community resources and direct them elsewhere. Direct them to to funding a different vision of public safety and public welfare than what's embodied by the current criminal justice system. So uh, let's start with having police responsible for less of what goes wrong in society. Let's start by having resources that are more appropriate to the situation. Like if someone is having a mental health episode, you don't send a guy with a gun. You send somebody with um, experience in counseling. You send people who can handle a situation uh, that's likely to arise when someone's having a mental health issue, and, and so on. So, I mean, that's defund the police is is emblematic of a movement that's been around for a long time. People have been fighting for this for a long time, and it's been brought to the fore thanks to to um, the recent uprising over the um, recent police killings of George Floyd and Ahmed Arbery and 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 others. Um, I think, though, that we also, as progressives, uh, need to look at how much we're spending on supporting the global U.S. national security infrastructure. In other words, the the American empire, in essence. We're spending a lot of money on this, an incredible amount of money on this. And again, I've talked to this in previous episodes, but really what we should be talking about is the analog to defund the police with regard to international affairs and the national security um, infrastructure. So in other words, our version of defund the police should be defund the DOD, right? That may not be the best slogan, but guess what? We need to come up with something because military spending in the United States in uh, inflation-adjusted dollars is nearly as high as it was during the height of World War II. It's been climbing steadily since the 1980s, particularly. Um, There have been several spikes. And the most recent spike um, was in 2008, 2010, um, where spending went way up. Um, in 2009 dollars, it went up to somewhere around close to 800 billion dollars. Um, it dropped back because of sequester, as I mentioned in previous episodes, and since then it's it's gone up again through um, both congressional action and Donald Trump um, proposing you know 750 billion dollar budgets, defense budgets. Um, and again, it's not just Trump. 
this legislation was voted on by Democrats and Republicans. They all supported it. Not all of them, but I mean a lot of them, and certainly enough of them, to be a broadly bipartisan defense budget. We're never going to get anywhere with progressive policy and with funding not only domestic priorities, but international priorities that don't involve dropping bombs on people. (laughs) We're never going to get anywhere with that unless we do something about this defense budget. That's one piece of it. The other piece of it is we're never going to be able to do anything either domestically or globally um, with regard to um, progressive policy priorities unless we do something about tax policy. And the fact that we've been cutting taxes on the richest people in the United States for decades. So on the revenue raising end of it, um, we need to rethink things to a great degree because we've gone from, you know, 90% tax rates and the highest, the highest marginal rates being at around 90% or 94% back in the 1940s through the, through the fifties where it dropped in the early sixties where it dropped to 70%, then down into the forties. And now we're into the twenties. So the richest people in the country are paying a lot less than they used to. And the uh, not so rich people are carrying a much larger burden and making a lot less money um, comparatively. And that's, that's problematic. Um, So we're losing revenue on one end and we're spending it in all the wrong places on the other. So just as we're sinking, you know, untold billions of dollars into militarized policing and essentially abusive police policy and an overbroad application of police force uh, as a supposed remedy for a whole broad spectrum of societal issues that come up as a result of, you know, just bad policy. Um, Similarly, we're spending way too much on the Defense Department, you know, to support an overly broad mandate for our military. Again, it's similar to the police. It's like we are using them for a range of purposes that... um, (laughs) that they're really not designed to handle. (laughs) And that supports a kind of, you know, imperial view of the world that, um, that reflects our sort of general attitude. Um, as Americans, we feel like we know better what to do with your country than you do. And we feel like we have somehow have the standing to tell you what to do. Um, and we feel like we have the standing to say to, you know, a Russia or a China, you know, that you're overstepping the boundaries of good, um, global citizenship when you get into conflicts on the periphery of, of your country, on the borders of your country. Whereas (laughs) 
we ourselves um, are projecting power all over the world. So we criticize Russia um, with some justice for invading um, eastern Ukraine and um, annexing Crimea. Um, And, you know, uh, rightfully so. But we um, invaded Iraq. We've been in Afghanistan for 20 years. Um, We are currently um, embedded in countries throughout Africa where we are helping the Saudis destroy Yemen. Um, We are still deeply involved in Somalia. Um, (laughs) It's like none of these countries share a border with the United States. Whereas Ukraine is um, just a considerable border with the uh, Russian Federation. Um, Similarly with China, you know, they have their disputes with some of their neighbors, India, particularly in recent weeks, have been uh, has been uh, that conflict has sort of come to the fore, and they've had disputes with Japan. So it's <laughs> it's not simple, and I'm not I'm not saying that they're justified in some of their actions, but it's certainly no more heinous, and probably not as heinous as the things that we've done in projecting our influence and our power well beyond our borders. Now, there will be people out there who will say, you know, in response to this, they'll say, well, you know, we're not claiming any foreign territory. Well, that's not exactly how we work, right? We don't need to claim foreign territory. (laughs) We subordinate other governments to our will all the time. We don't need to run the place directly. All we need to do is apply massive pressure, massive pressure on weaker governments and penetrate them with our economic power and with our with our diplomatic influence and with our ability to essentially make their economy scream, as uh, the next administration had said about Allende's Chile. It's, this is just how it works, right? What we have is a broad front in the United States politics um, between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, Party with regard to foreign policy. And we need to counter this as progressives. We need to be aware of this and we need to push the Democratic Party to be better than that. Bernie Sanders has done some some good work on this score. Uh, I'd say that he hasn't gone nearly far enough, but he appears to be one of the few dissenting voices in the mainstream Democratic Party. He's not a member of the Democratic Party, I realize, but he caucuses with the Democrats in the Senate, so in effect he is, and he ran for the nomination, obviously. Look, you know, we have to encourage him to take stronger stands. We have to encourage other legislators and senators and presidential candidates to not give in to the easy policy choice of just going with the herd on an aggressive imperialist foreign policy, Um, which appears to be where we're headed. 
and it's largely because of the you know of the sort of the resistance broad united front against trump who is himself an imperialist to the extent that it aligns with his own self-interest and is himself at the head of an imperialist um administration uh, that's being critiqued essentially from the right by uh, neocon Republicans and by Democrats. It's hard to name a single issue in foreign policy where the mainstream Democrats and the and their sort of neocon newfound allies are, are to the left of Trump regard, with regard to foreign policy. Some nuances, perhaps. But in broad strokes, it's like they will say he's not tough enough on Russia. He's not tough enough on China. He's not tough enough on Venezuela, some of them will say. I mean, this is this is nuts. And, you know, I don't want to call out Biden because he hasn't really posted anything on this. I don't know what his position is. I know what some of his web ads have suggested. Um, but there's no, as far as I can tell, there are no... Um, finely articulated positions on foreign policy issues. Waiting to see it. If any of you out there see anything um, that indicates where the presumptive Democratic nominee is on these foreign policy issues, I'd like to see it. Please share it with me. Anyway, that's uh, my tirade for this week. I'd like to hear your tirade. Why don't you uh, leave me a voicemail at anchor.fm slash strange sound. Or, you know, send me a message. I'm on Twitter at at strange sound pod. You can also find uh, links to our Facebook page and other sort of online resources um, at the anchor site, anchor.fm slash strange sound. Um, links to Strange Sound and other resources are also available at big-green.net. Love to hear from you. Let me know what you think. If you think I'm full of shit, if you think I don't make any sense, hey, tell me. I'll try to do better. <laughs> Be happy for some criticism. Um, I'll play your comments on the show. Be happy to do it. Love to turn this into a conversation. Anyway, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.